Well, good morning. Welcome to Northridge Church. It's good to see you all. Hope you're ready for a great 4th of July. Always fun to be with you all. Uh, you all if you um, are, are new here, we're um, beginning a series called Unforgettable. And what, we're, what we've chosen to do is have a number of us up here on the platform, one at a time, but sharing with you unforgettable truths or principles or life-changing nuggets that have shaped the way we have lived our lives. And I'm going to do that this morning. Um, this one is a truth that I'm sure you've tried to wrap your arms around. Maybe you have already, but I'm going to give you language to, um, to the way God has worked in my life, and it may just apply to you. Um, let me begin with a story. Um, if you know American history, if you know 20th century American history, you know the name Harry Truman. Harry Truman served as our president during the final days of World War II, arguably made the most profound decision a president ever made in the 20th century, dropping atomic bombs on another country. An incredible time in our, in our histories, in the history of our nation. Um, but if you would have known Harry Truman... In his younger days, as a kid, you probably would have voted him the least likely to be the president. You all know people like this, don't you? As a kid, you go, I don't know what they're going to do, and then all of a sudden they do something. Well, Harry Truman grew up on a farm. Um, he was kind of a nerdy kid, kind of frail, uh, wore big, thick glasses that made his eyes look really big, so his classmates made fun of him. Um, he finally got done with school and went off to college. But it was while he was away in college that his dad got very sick, and he had to come back to work the farm. Only president in the 20th century that never finished college. But something happened to Harry Truman as a young adult, a young man, that changed the path of his career forever. He signed up to fight in World War I. And while he was over in Europe marching with the rest of the troops, the Germans started dropping something from the sky. Nobody knew quite what it was, but they knew it was not good. And so everyone just begins to run in retreat. In absolute terror, they just scatter. Harry Truman had a horse fall over right on top of him. It was a miracle he didn't die right then and there. But when he squirmed up from under the horse and saw the rest of the men running in fear, this nerdy four-eyed guy yelled out at the top of his lungs to the men, Stop! Get back here! We've not finished our mission. I think everybody was so shocked that this nerd was calling them back that they stopped dead in their tracks and they returned and they finished their mission. That night, Harry Truman wrote in his journal right before he went to bed, I learned two things about myself today. Number one, I had a little bit of courage. And number two, I really like to lead. And from that point on, he was on a trajectory of leadership. One position after another, one responsibility after another, later became the president of our nation. But I'm suggesting to you that Harry Truman's life was much like yours and mine. That even though we maybe will never become president, our mark is, our, our paths are marked by these defining moments, these crucibles, really these crises that define who we become. And either we respond well or we don't respond so well, but if we respond well, they shape us and take us to a whole nother level. As a kid, Harry Truman, Mm, not so much. You wouldn't have guessed. But as a man, because of these moments along the way, he became probably the best version of himself. What I want to share with you is the stages that I believe God walks us through as he at least desires to shape us into the best version of ourselves. 
And whatever your ultimate goal is, whatever God's ultimate goal is for you, I believe you're on a path right now. And you're either cooperating with him or, or you're not. But what I'd like to do is give you what I consider to be five stages, and I want you just to at least make mental note of these and see if you can spot yourself on this journey, okay? So um, we're going to start with a passage of Scripture. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. If you have your Bibles, um, remember Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we're going to read a couple of verses, and if you don't have your Bible, it's no worries. We're going to put it up on the screen. But I want you to follow with me as I read how God himself is compared to an eagle. And just as the eagle raises her young and, and, and does a number of very intentional things to prepare her young, to fly, so God does the same with us. So let's just read together. Um, I'm going to read out of the NIV, Deuteronomy 32, starting with verse 11. It says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions, the Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. Now, this text is speaking of Moses and how Moses was used by God as a human leader to lead the hundreds of thousands of Israeli people through the desert from, from Egypt to the promised land. But it's interesting that along the way, the description is that God was leading Moses, who led the people, like an eagle leads its young. Now, I don't know if you know much about the eagle. I'm not an eagle expert myself, but as I began to dig deeper about what this passage was really saying and then did a little research as to the intentional behaviors of a mama eagle with her young, it's uncanny how close they are to the divine behavior of God. In fact, I've come to believe that actually God puts in nature a number of pictures of himself. Don't you think that too? I mean, I think there's, there's pictures of the glory of God in every human being. I think he puts pictures of, of his nature in animals. And so I want to look at this eagle very closely, looking at the stages of the eagle. And I want to, um, I want to just compare it to God. So let's just jump in. Fasten your seatbelts. Stage number one. Um, Stage number one of our journey with God as he leads us to become the best version of ourselves, would be what you might call the nurturing stage. In other words, the very entry level that we have with God is where he meets us, we encounter him, and he, and he chooses to nurture. This is where God shelters. Now, let me describe the eagle's journey. When a mama eagle knows it's about to have a batch of eaglets, I don't even think it's called a batch, but I'm going to use the word batch here, okay? Um, she very deliberately soars to a very, very high uh, altitude and builds a nest, a large nest. In fact, the nest is huge. This is no robin redbreast thing. This is, this is a nest that's known to grow as wide as six feet wide and six feet deep. It's a huge bowl, way up high where predators can't reach it, and built at a very durable uh, materials, sticks and twigs and thorns and thistles, very, very, very durable. And then to prepare these eaglets for their new life, she will literally pluck feathers out of her own body to line the nest so it's as soft and comfortable and secure as it can be. So durable and yet soft, large, away from, away from danger, 
And in many ways, this is a picture of God. Many of you remember the first time you encountered Jesus. In fact, I don't know what your journey is, but all of you are in church today. But somewhere along the way, you decided to come to church. And maybe even before that, you decided, I want to really get to know God. I want to have a personal relationship. I remember for me, it was as a teenager. I'd gone to church all my life, but I'd kind of rebelled. I kind of strayed. Uh, but I remember as, as a 16, 17-year-old teenager, I invited Christ to come into my life. I experienced this nurturing stage. I was amazed at the cleansing I felt, the, the, the feeling of weight being taken off my shoulders as God literally, my mom told me this, cured me. She watched my attitudes change. She watched my vocabulary change, went from rated R to rated G. Um, she, she watched all kinds of things. I mean, and my anger just seemed to evaporate. It was amazing how it happened. And it was a nurturing stage. I felt the grace of God. Some of you remember these days. In fact, in fact, this is how God almost always starts us. He knows that as we begin a new life with him, there needs to be the soft lining of his feathers. And sacrificially, he does things for us. In fact, the cross was the big, the big sacrifice where he, where he just showers us with his grace. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is why you were drawn to him. Very few of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, I was drawn to God by just hearing thou shalt not commit adultery. I, that just drew me right in. Now, I'm having fun with you, but the point is, Romans 2, 4 says, it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. We get a glimpse of his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, that he could actually love an unlovable person like me, and we jump into the nest, and it's marvelous. And this is our only hope. Think about the stories you know in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Remember the stories of Jesus encountering very unlovable people? And it's always grace. In fact, the only time he really got angry with folks, it was religious leaders. But remember the woman caught in adultery? She's drugged out into the middle of the city square. She's been caught in the act. How humiliating. How embarrassing. And if you remember the Jewish men in this city, piously grab a stone in their hand. They're going to stone her to death. And Jesus starts scribbling something in the dirt. He gets their attention. My guess is he's scribbling a list of their sins. After all, he knows all of our sins. And then he looks at these men and says, I'll tell you what, guys. Let the one who's never sinned lead off here. You throw the first rock. And you know the story. One by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. And then he turns to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and says, where are your condemners? And she said, they're gone. And then he says, now remember, this is God Almighty, neither do I condemn you. Now, he was not agreeing with her sin. He was not saying, it's okay, that wasn't really a sin, that was just an alternative lifestyle. He didn't say that. He said, I don't condemn you, now go, don't, now go and sin no more. But the point was, he drew in this woman, maybe a prostitute, through grace. Remember Zacchaeus? Remember this? Remember singing about Zacchaeus in Sunday school? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Thank you very much. You remember those words. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which was the lowest, lowliest of vocations. You know that, don't you? That would be like, let's go back to World War II. That would be like Germany moves in on France. You're a French person, and you join up with the Nazis or the Third Reich and, and start collecting taxes from your own people. I mean, it was just, he was loathed by fellow Jews. But Jesus sees him up in a tree trying to get a glimpse of things and says, Zacchaeus, I want to have lunch with you today. He doesn't start reciting all the reasons why he's wrong for being connected with the Roman Empire. 
he has lunch with him. And we don't know what he says, but at the end of the lunch, we read this, that Zacchaeus wanted to respond to the grace of God by giving back four times the money he had stolen. There was no job description that said to do that. And then remember, as Jesus hung on a cross, one of the thieves next to him looked at him and said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Remember this? And Jesus looks over and just says, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, now I'll tell you what, get your life together and I'll, I'll consider that. We would have done that, right? You start acting a little righteous and we'll let you into church. But instead, without this man being able to be baptized, without him being able to be obedient to God, without him being able to give any money to the synagogue, he says, today you're in. Now, all I'm simply saying is, I'm reminding you of something you know. The first stage that every one of us needed was grace. But watch this. Along the way, we start noticing that there's a pulling part of grace and there's a pushing part of grace. Grace first pulls you to God's bosom and he embraces you and it feels great. But then there's a part where he pushes us just like the eagle. Let's look at the stage two. The second stage you might call, and I will call, the disturbance stage. After those little eaglets start growing up in that wonderfully lined nest with the feathers and all, the next stage is God, or excuse me, the eagle begins to disturb these eaglets. Do you know what she does? Seeing that these eagles are growing a little bit, and even though this was a six foot deep and six foot wide house, they're starting to fill it up. And mama knows that if I just leave things really comfortable, they'll stay here forever. Hear me, parents? Okay. Um, so let me just say, the eagle will slowly and one by one remove the feathers. I said she removes the feathers from the nest. And now, you know, there's sticks and twigs and thorns and thistles. It's kind of pricking them. It's poking them. In fact, people that study these eagles said sometimes those little eagles will bleed a little bit. But she's trying to move them up to the ridge of the nest where she will soar around it as if to say, can I show you what life could be like? That you were not made for the nest. You're not supposed to rest in the nest. So if the first stage is sheltering, the next stage is God's showing. The eagle is showing. We get a little disturbed and we kind of move to a different place. And by the way, can I just add real quick? This is where a lot of us get off track. That wonderful first stage was great. God was just loving me. It's wonderful. And then the second stage, the very same grace, starts pushing us forward to become the person we were designed to be. And we don't like it. And this is where some of you in this room may have left church for a while. You weren't feeling the love. This whole honeymoon period with God was over. And now you're, you're just not. And you went through a season of time. Many of you, not all, but many of you went through a season of time where you just drifted from God. You went off and tried other things and did this and did that. And maybe you're back because you realized it wasn't too good out there either. But the point is, the same grace, the same God that pulled you and hugged you is now saying, is now saying this. I love you just the way you are. But I love you too much to leave you that way. By the way, don't you love that about God? Just like a good parent that says, I love you, sweetheart, but I'm not going to let you stay a slacker or I'm not going to let you stay lazy. And so the eagle and God both kind of create a little bit of a disturbance in the way. And we will either say, I'm trusting you or as I just mentioned, we will get off track. We whine, we drift, we start getting mad. We call ourselves an atheist for a little while or whatever. 
But it's all God at work. He just knows what he has to do to build us into the people that he can really use. Now, let me talk about parenting for just a minute. This is not a parenting conference, but one of the reasons I think we get off track spiritually as we look to God as a heavenly father is because we perhaps didn't know how to parent very well. Maybe we weren't parented very well. I don't know. But um, many of you know that along with my work here at Northridge, I lead a nonprofit organization called Growing Leaders, and we have a foundation. We partner with over 7,000 schools attempting teachers and parents to really connect with and develop young leaders out of kids. That's the goal. I am seeing even though I am one of them, I am seeing a generation of parents that not all of them, but many have just completely gotten off track. We've done a much better job protecting our kids than preparing our kids. We've done a lot of preventing, but not much preparing. And so as we sit here today, you know this, I'm sure, but um, Condoleezza Rice and Joel Klein released a study that said three-fourths of the teens in America, 75% of the teens in America, aren't even fit for the military due to criminal records, obesity, or failure to graduate. A full 80% just two years ago, when they finished with college, were moving back home. A full one-third of all the males in America, between 22 and 35 years old, still live at home with their parents. Ladies, if you're looking for a husband, go to mama's house. There he is. But he's doing really, really well on Grand Theft Auto. Really well. I want you to know that. Okay? Okay. Now, I don't mean to make fun, but I'm saying this. I don't fault the kids. If you're taking notes, I do not fault the kids. I'm saying, what do we do? We did the nurture thing really well. But maybe not the preparing thing really well. And it's hard. Maybe we didn't like them to not like us. Because I'm telling you, most every teenager goes through a season of life where they didn't like mom and dad. Just like you went through a period of time. You didn't like God. All I'm saying is it's part of leadership to go through this series where it's not very fun, but we need to be disturbed to grow. Are you not like this too? I'm like this. Can I just share real quick some stories? I got an email from a professor at the University of Syracuse in New York. She said, Tim, I just handed back my first set of tests to my freshman students. She's one of the girls in the class got a C- minus on her test. Well, she quickly discovered this girl had never, ever gotten a C-minus in her life before. And so she had a meltdown right there in class. Oh, meltdown. Everybody looks over this poor girl as she's having her meltdown in the class. The first thing the girl thinks to do, the only thing she knows to do, is reach in her backpack and pull out her cell phone. She texts mom. Mom makes the mistake of texting back right away. Call me, sweetheart, right now. So right there in class, she calls mom. Well, you know, cell phone conversations are kind of loud, so everything else stops as the girl's having a conversation. She goes, okay, mom, she wants to talk to you. Hands the phone to the faculty member so mom can negotiate a B minus out of the C minus. I wish I could tell you this was an isolated experience. It happens hundreds of thousands of times every year. I could stay here an hour and make you laugh or cry at what we parents are doing. I got, listen, I got a note from Harvard University and uh, it was an admissions counselor that said, Tim, I knew you would enjoy this story. I always know it's going to be good when they say, I knew you would enjoy this story. He said, I was interviewing a prospective Harvard student. He's a senior in high school. And he said, I just assumed in this interview that mom and dad had trained him very well. Because he, he was kind of shy and he was looking down at the floor. But when he answered the questions, he'd give me eye contact. I thought, man, they must have told, you know, told him to give me eye contact. He said, it wasn't until after the interview that I realized what was really happening. He was not shy at all, 
when he was looking down, he was looking down at his phone. He was texting the questions to his mother, and mama was texting the answers back to him so he could look the man in the eye and give him the answer. It was a teleprompter in his hand through a portable device. <laughs> Needless to say, the student did not make it into Harvard. I got, an, I got a letter from a college president. Folks, this is the president of a university that said, Tim, I don't know how this mama got my phone number, but one of the mothers of one of our students called me and said, hey, I've been watching the Weather Channel. I noticed the weather was kind of cold up there. Could you make sure my son has his sweater on this week? Sure, ma'am, I've got nothing else going on this week. I'll be happy to do that. Glad to help. That's what I'm here for. Now, I'm being silly, but I'm going to stop right there, and I'm simply going to say, moms and dads, you intuitively know, don't you, even if you fail to do it, what you got to do to get your kid ready. To leave the home healthy, well-adjusted, ready to be a mom or dad, ready to be a good worker, ready to be a career person, ready to be a good spouse. All I'm saying is God's doing the same thing with us. And we either rebel or we embrace. But there's a pushing and a pulling to God's grace. Stage one, there's a lot of pulling to himself. By stage two, there's some pushing. Let's do stage three. The third stage of this journey that we learn from the eagle is the motivation stage. So it goes from nurturing, that's where God shelters, to disturbance, that's where God shows us what life could look like as the eagle hovers around the nest. By the motivation stage, the eagle is shoving. Do you remember the passage I just read where the eagle's hovering over its young? The word hovering, it literally means that the eagle is flapping its large wings. And you know the wingspan is pretty big. She's flapping her large wings as the eaglets are up on the rim of that nest and they fall off. Now listen, this is a loving mother eagle flapping her wings so the babies fall out. She knows, here's what she's saying. She's sending a new message. Not only is she sending the message, you just can't rest in the nest to become what you're supposed to be. She's now saying, she's now sending the message, you were made for something more. It is in you to fly. You can do this. Now, as she flaps her wings, you know in this stage it's time to get out of the nest and do what you're designed to do. But this is great fear and trembling on the part of the eaglet, okay? What's happening is the mother is actually creating incentive. She knows that she can't teach them how to fly through reading a manual. They can't watch the flat screen in the nest and get this message through a video, okay? She's got to say, you got to drop into th- you got to you got to drop into the air, and then you will have just like you can't learn to swim by reading a book about water. You got to get in the water. And by the way, isn't it true you get in the water? It may take you a while, but you're going to learn to swim. All I'm simply saying is this eagle. I want you to draw from this now. This eagle will flap its wings, and the little baby birds are falling from the nest. The eagle creates incentive, knowing that the only incentive you'll really have to fly is if you have to. The eagle creates what you might know as disequilibrium, that season of conflict where there's not an easy answer. The answer isn't spoon-fed. It doesn't come quickly. And yet, you're, you're going to get it because you're, you're, you're pushed out. I have a dear friend. He's actually the chairman of our board at Growing Leaders. His name is Randy Hain. Randy is a marvelous father. And I say that because he's very intentional about raising his two boys, both young boys, 9 and 11. But his oldest boy, who's 11 years old, his name is Alex, has autism. Recently, Randy was at our donor event for Growing Leaders. We were raising money for schools that couldn't afford uh, leader development. And Randy brought both of his boys, including Alex, his son with autism. 
and Alex had to sit through a two-hour evening, and I don't know if you know anything about autism, but that's challenging. Afterwards, I talked to him, and I said, Randy, that was amazing that you had your boys, and that I saw you taking them around, shaking hands with people, and they were dressed up with ties and suits on. And I want, you to, I want to just tell you what Randy said to me when I brought this up. In fact, he said it so eloquently. I said, can I write that down and quote you? He said, sure. Randy said to me, I know these kinds of evenings can be hard for Alex. Autism makes it difficult for him to sit still, listen, and not call attention to himself. But I want to prepare him for what's ahead. So I look for events like this to be learning times. And while they're painful, learning these lessons is now is far less painful than the consequences of not learning them until later. That's just wise fatherhood, don't you think? I love Psalm 131. Psalm 131 is a psalm of David. David is writing it. And in verse 2, David talks about how his soul was quieted and calm before him. And he says, God, I related to you like a weaned child. Now, that's very interesting. Did you hear that term? Weaned child. You know what a weaned child is, don't you? It's not an infant that's just laying in the crib waiting for mama to do everything. Just laying around, whining for the bottle, peeing the diaper, everything else. That's not what he was. He said, I'm a weaned child. I'm still fully dependent upon my mom and dad. But I'm able to cooperate with my mom and dad. That's where God wants us. You are a son and daughter of God. And regardless of your physiological age, you are a son and a daughter of God. But he wants you to operate like a weaned child. You fully need him and his strength and his wisdom. But you're cooperating with along the way. And in this stage, God weans, just like the eagle weans her young. So this third stage, the motivation stage, is very, very difficult. But it's also a pushing stage in the grace story. Let's go to number four. Stage four might be what you call the protection stage. The protection stage. If you remember, stage one, God shelters. Stage two, God shows. Stage three, God shoves. Now God shoulders. Because you know the story of the eagle, don't you? As these baby birds fall, they're probably thinking, if they're thinking anything at all, I'm doomed. I am gone. This is it. My life was short. But as they're dropping from the nest, and I mean it would be hundreds of feet, the mama eagle swoops under them and catches them. In fact, you've read this, on its pinions. In fact, remember that passage in Isaiah that says, we mount up on wings like eagles? That's another picture of this. Just like the mama eagle catches the baby bird, we mount on God's wings. We are mounted where he carries us through our most painful times. Folks, can I encourage you? In the times in your life where you're stepping out and taking a risk, you are feeling very vulnerable right now. I don't know what it is, but you're feeling very vulnerable. I'm telling you, just like the mama eagle has never paid so much close attention as she does in that fourth stage when her little kids are dropping, God is paying especially close attention to you in these times where you're stepping out in faith. You're not a new Christian anymore, but he's paying especially close attention because you are now dropping from the nest and he knows I gotta make sure I carry you here. This is another vulnerable spot where we often drop away from God. We go, you know what, I'm fallen. I'm just gonna grab onto something myself. I'm gonna make it happen. You watch God, I'll take it from here. And God goes, okay, if that's all you want me to do is watch, I'll watch. I don't know about you, but I want him carrying me, don't you? So in this stage, he actually protects 
And so can I just real quick review? The first stage, he's pulling it close to himself. The next two stages, he's pushing. Now he's pulling you close to himself again. But you're more mature this time. You are learning how to be intimate with God because you are in a very risky situation where you're stepping out and trying something you've never tried before. Maybe you're breaking an addiction. Maybe you're taking on a new job. Maybe it's a new spouse. You're starting over with marriage. I don't know what it is, but something you're doing is very hard and very risky, and you're just saying, I'm going for it, and you jump out of the nest by faith, and God does this for you. You know what I've noticed in my life? I, have, uh, I started working with, I started ministry in 1979, 35 years ago. When I first started out, I looked at my job description, and I thought, I'm going to do the best I can at that job description. And I did. Within about 12 to 18 months, the youth group that I was leading was growing. It had grown many, many times. Income, the revenue was up. Morale was up. People were coming to Christ. It was marvelous. But I quickly realized after about 18 months that God said, I'm not just calling you to a job. I'm calling you to a work. And the work God calls us to do is almost always bigger than the job we have. In fact, the work God calls you to do is probably never going to be given you on a piece of paper by another human being. It's bigger. It's, it's bigger. Now, the job may be a platform to do the work he's called you to do, but there's something bigger, and he wants you to, fall, to jump out of the nest or let him push you out of the nest, and then for you to respond to what only he can do. It's hard, but it's worth it. So this is stage four. Years ago, this would have been when President George W. Bush was the president. He was asked to speak to the NAACP. Now, this was an unusual thing for a conservative to be speaking at the NAACP. So there was some nervous laughter at the beginning. He made some jokes. But in the speech he made, he said something very profound that won them over, in fact, in this meeting. President Bush was talking about at-risk kids, kids often from minority groups, not always, but often from minority groups, who were at risk of dropping out and getting into uh, uh, criminal behavior and drugs and so forth. And he said, we have been guilty of the soft bigotry of low expectations. I'm going to say that again. We have been guilty of the soft bigotry of low expectations. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, we're saying, well, the rich kids, they'll probably find a way into college because they're really smarter. And the at-risk kids, well, they're just not really smart. That is not true. I've been to many at-risk schools. These kids are just as smart as the rich kids. They just don't have any advantages. I'm saying, don't be guilty of the soft bigotry of low expectations for your life for your kids' lives, because I'm telling you, God isn't. He, is, he does not have low expectations. I don't know how gifted you think you are. I don't know what your IQ is. Don't need to know. Uh, what, I do, what I do need to tell you is this. Your heavenly Father probably has larger expectations than you do of what he wants to accomplish through your life, but it would involve the pushing and the pulling. Let's do stage four. Or five, I'm sorry. Wasn't a math major. Okay. <laughs> stage five, the final stage, could be what you call the success stage. The success stage. This is where God is sharing. Now, let me describe this to you. This is the really cool stage that, by the way, relatively few believers get to. Did you hear that? Not everybody's guaranteed a wonderful life and so forth. If you don't respond very well, just ask Jonah. You can have a season of your life that didn't go so well. Okay. So, in this stage of the eagle's life, what happens is this. The eaglets are dropping from the nest. Most of them are thinking, I'm doomed, I'm guessing. 
Mama swoops in. They're riding on her wings. And she takes them right back up to the top and says, let's do it again. Kind of like the high dive. Remember teaching your kid to jump off the high dive? Let's do it again. No, yes. You know, so, so the, the, listen to this. People that study eagles will say they have watched the mother eagle will do this as often as she needs to until her young learn to fly. It may take hours. It may take days. I just want that to sink in for a little bit. In the same way that our God says, you know what, if you'll stay with me, I'll do as much as I need. I'll stay with you as long as I need to to teach you to fly. I will. I'm your father, your heavenly father. And so the eagles drop. I'm just picking, they drop and they drop and they drop and mama rescues and rescues and puts them back up until finally, until finally they start realizing, I've noticed that when mom does this, it works for her. I'm gonna do this too. And suddenly they experience the most rewarding, fulfilling and satisfying moments of their life to date because they're soaring alongside of mama. And I don't want to borrow too much from this, but I want to borrow enough to say this. The most rewarding parts of your walk with God, your life with Jesus, will be when you are now co-laboring with him. He's still God. You're still the servant of God. But you're soaring together. And he's sharing the fruit of what has just been done. Now, you know he did the most of it because God gave you the wings to fly. He taught you how to fly with those wings. But along the way, you have the rewarding experience of soaring to heights you never could have done had he not trained you. This is marvelous. In fact, in my life, I'll never forget early on, when I was uh, an early minister, a, a pastor, a young pastor, I don't know why I said an early pastor, a young pastor, I had this vision to not only lead the kids in my youth group, but I wanted to, um, I saw this old movie theater downtown where I was working, and I thought, I'd love to lease that out and turn it into a really cool movie theater that we could show movies that were really inviting to teenagers, but would have a truth in it, some principle, some redemptive analogy in it, that I could hop up at the end and maybe speak a little bit and tie a ribbon around it and maybe invite kids to come to Christ. So I rounded up the youth group and I said, we're going to lease this building, we're going to paint it up, we're going to recarpet it, I'm going to raise some money, and we went to town. In fact, I'll, I'll spare you the details, but we took several months and started really building this out. The kids were down there painting walls, and we laid new carpet, we got new seats, we were fixing this thing up. But I would say probably six, seven, maybe eight months into the journey, I was still in college, and we had finals, and so I, the money wasn't coming in as much, I didn't have a chance to talk to donors, and, and I would say by the end of that school year, this wonderful idea that I thought had great prospects was flopping. In fact, I'll never forget, I just realized it's not going to happen. And so I remember going back and talking to the senior pastor. I remember writing notes to all the donors saying, it looks like it's not going to happen. Do you want me to send your money back? I was going to have to raise money to return their money. Thankfully, most of them said no. It was an investment. We were happy to do it. Maybe, maybe another time. Well, I went through a season, probably the next year of my life, where I really questioned God, because I thought he was leading me to do this movie thing, this, this video thing, this whatever, and, and now it, it looked like it wasn't working at all. In fact, I thought that God had led me astray, or maybe I just, maybe I would, I just missed it. So I went through that season, that, that year-long season, and then as I'm laying in bed one night in my apartment, just praying, another idea hit me. It was to put together a multimedia presentation, including video and movie, so that I could take into the schools and do assemblies, public high schools. 
And to make a long story short, I put this thing together. I got some help from guys that understood technology. And I started approaching principals and teachers and saying, would you like me to bring this in and I could do this assembly and here would be the outcome. Here's the point. I started doing this in high schools all over the area. By the end of that next year, we had reached 20% of the teenagers and shared the message of Christ in public schools. It was amazing. But as I look back on it now, you know what I think? I think the first idea was really God, but it was my first attempt. I jumped out of the nest, and I needed God to swoop under me and rescue me and say, it's not going to be a movie theater, but it is going to be video that you take into the schools. In other words, you're not going to ask the kids to come somewhere else. You're going to go to the kids in the school. As I look back, I interpret that as me falling out of the nest my wonderful God swooping under me and catching me until, until time, round two where I learned to fly. You are going to find, I believe, many, many times in your life this will happen. You maybe got the idea, but it's just a little bit tweaked. Maybe it needs a little bit of an adjustment. Thanks. I'm no tech wizard, but I think we ran out of battery, okay? Um, all I'm saying is, I think you're going to find the same thing true in your life. You may try something and it fails, and you think, well, I miss God, or maybe God, maybe God blew me off, or whatever. That's not true at all. It's one of these swooping things, where God has to rescue and rescue and rescue until you learn to fly. Some of you, my guess is, remember teaching your kid, if you're a parent, you remember teaching your kid how to ride a bike. In fact, can I take a quick survey? Anybody in here, either aunt or uncle, mom or dad, grandparent, teach a kid ever ride a bike? Anybody have to have that experience? Okay, good. Many of you have. If you haven't, can I just tell you how it goes? It's a phase-by-phase journey. Am I right about this? The kid is, I don't know, two or three years old, but they look out at the older kids and they go, oh my gosh, I want to ride a bike too. And so you know, well, there's no chance a two or three-year-old is going to ride a bicycle. So you start him with a, with a vehicle that has three wheels called a Tricycle, exactly. Three wheels. So it's very difficult to fall off. Some do manage, but it's very difficult to fall off, okay? But you want to get them used to pedaling this thing and used to being on wheels. And after they do this for a while, they're looking around and they're noticing, well, all the big kids have two wheels, not three wheels. So they start asking for a bigger bike. And you go, okay, we're going to do that. But you move them up, but you know they're still not ready to ride a two-wheel bike. So you get the two-wheel bike that has something on the tail, uh, on, the, on, the, on the back wheel. It's called... Exactly. And these training wheels save their life, don't they? And yours too, actually. But you put those training wheels on, and now they get used to pedaling with two wheels. They have to balance a little bit better, and it is a little bit bigger. But if they start leaning, at least their training wheels are going to catch them. But there is a moment, you remember, when you, with fear and trepidation, with, but lots of anticipation, take those training wheels off, because your child or you are determined this is going to happen. With my daughter, it took a long time. She thought, I will never learn this, you know. But she did it and did it and did it. And finally, at that stage, my leadership of my daughter was a tender combination of support and letting go. Did you hear that? Support and letting go. Mom and dad. And in many ways, God never lets go of us. But in many ways, in God's training of us, it feels like he's letting go. Mm Mm-mm. He's just teaching you to fly. That's what he's doing. He's going to fly right next to you. But he's going to teach you how to fly. And he takes the training wheels off, and it's a journey. 
Um, I just finished a brand new book. It's going to be out next month called 12 Huge Mistakes Parents Can Avoid. I tell this whole story in there. We've got to do this well for our kids. It is a picture of what God does with us. Now, I don't know if any of you in this room remember watching a television show that was on about six or seven years ago. It finally went off the air, but do anybody remember watching the sitcom um, Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter? Remember that show with John Ritter? He was a dad, and he had two teenage daughters and then a son. And if you remember this show, it's all the, the hilarious things that happen when you parent teenagers. But if you remember, there was one particular episode and one particular scene that was very powerful. Um, his oldest teenage daughter, Bridget, wants to get her driver's license. In fact, they're here in Michigan. She wants to get her driver's license, and Daddy's not quite sure she's really ready for this responsibility. So she steals the family van and drives it out to the mall. She's just going to. De- she's determined to get her experience. Well, now Dad grounds her for life. You know how that goes. He's ground- she's grounded for life. You know. But along the way, they argue, and she's, she thinks I'm ready, and he says, "No, you're not." And then she's not sure. Sure. Now he's. By the end of the show. Mama has taken Bridget out to get her driver's license. And now Daddy's got this moment where he realizes it's time for me to both support and let go at the same time. And instead of describing what happens, I want you just to watch the screens. It's a great scene. And so it is with God. I want to read something real quick as I close today. This is a piece I found a long time ago. I thought it so appropriately said in a summary of what I'm trying to say. This adventure It's simply called the road of life. Let me get my glasses. At first, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there sort of like a president. I recognized his picture when I saw it. But I really didn't know him. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride, but it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts, up mountains and through rocky places, at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. And even though it looked like madness, he'd say, just pedal. I worried and was anxious and asked, where are you taking me? He laughed and didn't respond. And I started to learn trust. All he would say was, pedal. I forgot my boring life and entered into an adventure. And when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. Just pedal. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing, acceptance, and joy. They gave me gifts to take on my journey, my Lord's and mine. And we were off again. And he'd say, give those gifts away. They're too much weight. So I did to people we met. And I found that in giving, I received. And yet still, our burden was light. I did not trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it take sharp corners. Knows how to jump to clear high rocks. Knows how to fly 
to short and scary passages. And I am learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest of places. I'm actually beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful companion, Jesus Christ. And just when I'm sure I can't do it anymore, he smiles and says, pedal. I want to pray with you. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I first of all pray for everyone within the sound of my voice now. We're all at different places in our maturation, different places on our spiritual journey, our relationship with you, our levels of closeness and intimacy with you. But Father, I believe we're in one of these stages. Help us, Father, to put our finger on it. Help us, show us, reveal to us where we are and what you want us to do. Help us to not just yearn to rest in the nest and just do the routine and survive. Stir us up, God. Push us out of the nest if you need to. But Father, I'm asking that you would do what you need to do to finish the work you've begun in our lives. Now, with your heads bowed, we have people every weekend here at Northridge that um, come, and maybe you're fairly new, maybe you're not so new, but you would say, if you were honest, I don't know if I've ever taken that first step with Jesus Christ. I don't think I've ever, you know, officially stepped over the line of faith and invited him to come into my life and be my personal Lord and Savior. You know a lot about him, but you don't know him. You don't know, if you were honest, that you'd go to heaven if you died. You know what the scripture says? You can know that for sure. And it's not based on your goodness, but on his work on the cross. And if you'd like to take that step today, just right where you're seated, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And if it expresses the desire of your heart, I want you just to kind of say it after me. You don't even have to repeat it word for word. But just if this thought represents what you want to do, I'm just going to guide you in a prayer and allow you to invite him into, into your life. Let's do that. Dear God, I do want to know you the way we've talked about this today. I want to walk through these stages close to you. So right now, Lord, I invite you to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for the forgiveness for all my sins. Now, God, walk me through these stages in my life. Build me into the kind of person you want me to be. And thank you for the gift of everlasting life with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me, one more 30-second block. I want you to take out this program you got. If you'll notice, if you open it up on the inside cover, the right-hand side, there's a little flap that you could tear off. It's got two orange ribbons, one at the top, one at the bottom. If you'll... Um, Fill out that little flap, and then what you'll do is check that little box at the bottom that says, today I prayed to receive Christ in my life for the first time. We would love to just follow up with you. We have something called Starting Point that will help you develop this relationship with God along the way. We just love to help you succeed. Folks, I always love hanging out with you. I think the new book that I just finished is in the bookstore, but have a great 4th of July. Have a great week. God bless you.